Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week on The Grange Point, we have Lachlan, Lauren and Justin. This week, Twitch plays LaGrange Point, where we talk about the science behind a lot of gaming stories, including Dogecoin, Grand Theft Autos and Trolls, reliance on social networks to make decisions, and, and FPS is helping you with dyslexia, and not even rocket surgery. What would you let 50,000 people battle for control for? And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. This week's City of Science is, of course, the one and only Pallet Town from the Kanto region. Now, the reason why we're talking about Pallet Town as our City of Science this week is because... Twitch Plays Pokemon is a phenomenon on the internet at the moment, but unfortunately we can't tell you the, the location of the actual person who is running and coordinating the stream. She's chosen to remain anonymous, though we do know she's an Australian programmer. So in lieu of that, our city of science for this week will be Pallet Town, the fictional starting town in the world of Pokemon Red and Blue. I've had a lot of internet buzz about Twitch and play and all sorts of things, but I'm an old man. I don't really understand all this young people technology. Could you please just fill me in quickly about what the hell's going on here? Okay, so Twitch Plays Pokemon is sort of, it's half an experimental art piece, half sort of an interactive video game playing experience. So you've got somebody who has set up a computer that is playing Pokemon on the internet, but they're not putting in the inputs. What they've actually done is opened up a chat window so people can put in the commands and then translate it to the game's language. Um, so you've got lots and lots of people talking on a chat forum trying to operate the same game. Simultaneously. And there's like so there's thousands of people sitting in this chat room pressing the button and saying, move here, move up, move down, select bag, select fight, Yeah, talk. it's like arguing with a sibling or trying to play a game while someone's trying to press buttons, but there's 50,000 people trying to press buttons at the same time. And so why is this why is this really taken off as a as a as a thing on the internet? I think a lot of it's it's actually quite fun to watch, even though it's frustrating. So there's really a great deal of um, joy if you actually see them achieve anything, because so much of it is just people bickering and and the ca- character walking around in circles and stuff like that, and losing miserably to basic tasks. So it takes a, a, an easy task normally and turns it into something really difficult, when therefore it becomes entertaining to watch when you actually succeed. Yes, like they spent five hours watching um, a character trying to walk um, past the ledge, only to at the end of that five hours actually jump and fall back over the ledge again. But some complex things, like some battles, they can beat in three minutes. So that's really fascinating, and Twitch Plays is basically a web stream where you can go and be involved right now, Twitch Plays Pokemon, and be part of this grand social experiment. Now, we will talk about this a bit later when the science is done and the, and the study is complete, because the co- person coordinating this whole thing has said that she's actually doing this for social science reasons. So we'll save up that content, but use that as a launching board for some other interesting gaming stories that are going on this week. So, I mean, it's so cool that these people can be involved in Twitch Plays Pokemon. I mean, I know I would definitely want to be involved. I think I'd be one of those people who would go and try and mess with it a little, though. I've got a bit of a mean streak. I mean, that's a common thing, though, isn't it? Actually, yes, Lauren. You're not alone in your horrible and cruel tendencies <laughs> to mess with people on the internet. Um, we've got some research um, at the Nanyang Technological University in Singapore, um, collaborating with um, a couple of Chinese universities, actually, where they've surveyed the habits of game players in online games or massively multiplayer online games. So games you've got lots of people playing in a shared environment and trying to work together to achieve things. So what they've actually found is that... Um, Instead of playing by the rules of the game, a lot of people sort of find fun um, by trying to ruin it for other people, like you said. 
Um, but what we actually see is if you build communities based on this trolling or griefing, basically spoiling the game for others, um, these groups grow bigger and bigger, and actually um, you build entire cultures based on wrecking it for other people. So that actually becomes, in effect, the main game. Is this more of like an internet phenomenon? I mean, I don't see this happening as much in real life. Is there a reason why it's more internet-based? I think on the internet, it's a lot easier to mess with people without like lasting consequences. Of course, cyberbullying and stuff like that is so important to, to not take lightly. Um, but you can't burn someone's house down as a joke in real life. That has bigger consequences. But um, I think sort of the fact that it's in a constantly changing environment and the fact that it's like semi-anonymous a lot of the time, so you can be really anyone on the internet and build communities and have a different persona. Um, and so I think that makes it a lot easier to be a jerk without it feeling like it's such a big deal. So one of the things that this actual bit of research got into is they did a systematic survey of people playing these online games. And a couple of the interesting findings that came out of it, so they, they, they talked to 900 teenagers between 13 and 18 who played not just a single game environment but multiple game environments. And that they found that you know male gamers were more likely to cheat or undertake griefing or trolling behaviour than female gamers. And female gamers were more likely to cheat as a consequence of the rest of the group cheating. So there'll be a stronger conformist element. So what they found is that there's in these communities that started to form, if you were largely a lawless trolling bunch, then everyone sort of adopts that dynamic as part of the community, as opposed to if you're more of a law-abiding bunch, the actual instances of trolling is much less. Now, why you end up in that state is unclear either way, but once you end up in that state, you sort of tend to conform to either one of those those groups as a community. So the people that you actually group with and play with, which form your group, which can change quite a bit, is sort of influences the rest of your behaviour. Now, this is really interesting because this was done, the original studies and the surveys was done in 2009, but there's some great games going on right now, like Rust and um, DayZ, as uh, which are a couple of survivalist games which are based around the premise of surviving in a post-apocalyptic world and basically making do. And what, what they, since it's about survival, it's also really strict rules. So you can kill somebody, you can take all their stuff, you can scavenge things as much as you want, which encourages players to actually kill each other, scavenge each other, or form gangs to work together to kill each other people and scavenge their belongings and survive in a post-apocalypse. Is that different though, Justin, because that's part of the game mechanic? Part of the game is you're supposed to be forming groups and killing each other? No, it's not necessarily part of the game mechanic. You don't have to kill other people, but it sort of emerges as a behaviour of survival. You either kill them before you get killed and therefore stay alive, or you seek out a strongly trolling and griefing group and join them, even though they might haze you or do whatever they have to do to you originally, simply because that way you'll be safe later on. And it's a really interesting analysis of what happens when you sort of ended up in a lawless state. Is this predicting what's going to happen to us in the future if we ever end up in a post-apocalyptic world? Well, it's just as good as predictor as Mad Max. I personally, though, I'm hoping for the Fallout-style post-apocalypse where we have lovely 40s jazz music playing as we enjoy the post-apocalyptic zombie-fueled world. <laughs> so that's all fantasy, post-apocalyptic, end-of-the-world stuff. Lachlan. But are there other, any other games which are doing interesting things in the social dynamic modelling? Well, there is, Justin, but the example you used, Rust, it's sort of, um, these people are sort of ganging up on each other to try and survive and get within the game. But then you've got this idea of um, a metagame where people actually play the game only to ruin it for other people. So in EVE Online, which is a massively multiplayer online game that deals with spaceships and building really, really huge 
um, intergalactic shipping trades and, and corporations and, and networks and mining and trading and all the other kinds of things. It is, a, for want of a better word, an economy simulator. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And so there's so much complexity in that, and people put so much of their lives into it. It's almost like it draws griefers and trolls to it just to try and wreck the work that people do. Um, and so you've got this group of people um, who are famous on EVE for buying lots of really, really, really little ships um, and flying them into really, really, really big ships that are actually worth thousands of real-life dollars. Because <laughs> that's the funniest thing, is that um, people put in so many hours into this, it's worth real money. And so they fly these tiny, tiny ships and just keep crashing them into the big ships, destroying thousands of dollars and, and thousands of hours of, of real person's work. And it raises a really interesting question about what value we assign to virtual currency and virtual circumstance. And... What this means is that when you have communities, and what the studies have shown is if there's a non if there's non-conforming trolling type behavior, if the community endorses that and starts playing by those rules, then it's really hard to get out of that state because you'll tend to stick to that. Whereas if you have a generally law or law abiding one, you sort of conform to that merger as well. So the behavior of people in gaming communities is actually a really interesting microcosm of human psychology. Now the question about what value we ascribe to virtual currencies is going to be a political for our next time. What else can we do with video games to help actual people's lives and not just troll them? Well, video games are really um, interesting things that have visual and auditory um, components to them. And those visual and auditory components can actually help with learning disabilities such as dyslexia. So what is dyslexia? So dyslexia is actually a developmental reading disorder, which means that um, people with dyslexia can have difficulty reading and processing words and reading them with the letters in the correct order and understanding that. So it means that they often have difficulty either reading words on a page or writing words on a page, which can lead to a lot of confidence as well as learning issues, obviously, in the classroom. So that's obviously a big challenge that a lot of people have to deal with and overcome. How can video games help with that? Well, at the University of Oxford, there was actually a study done um, about the visual and auditory um, components of video games, specifically just people reacting to visual stimuli and people um, reacting to auditory stimuli. And what they found with, was um, that people, they had, what they did was they had to push a button when they either heard a beep or saw a flash on the screen. And most people just responded very quickly if it was, for example, like a beep and then a beep. People with dyslexia actually responded very, very slowly when there was a beep after a flash. So that um, they actually responded worse if you say a word after um, seeing something visually. Okay, so they have trouble actually taking information of different types and processing that? Yep, and specifically with that um, sound after seeing something visually, which that actually relates really well to our learning styles in schools, for example, because when you're first learning words and how to read, what usually happens is you're shown a word and then someone says it out loud. they found for dyslexia, it's actually better to do it the other way around and to say the word first and then show them how it's written. Okay, hang on, but how does this relate to video games? Because I had a guy who used to play Xbox and not do any of his homework, and he wasn't very good at reading. So how does playing Xbox and video games help you actually learn to read? Well, video games, um, you're actually switching from auditory stimulus and visual stimulus. You're switching back and forth really quickly all the time. So by doing that, by playing video games, people with dyslexia become better at switching between those two stimuli very quickly, and that actually might help them um, with improving literacy. So what they're actually getting at there is, because you're playing a game like FPS, where you're actually exposing yourself to multiple stimuli in quick succession. Wait, is this when you're shooting lots of people and yeah. going so around the place? so a first-person game, right? 
right? So it doesn't matter what if you're shooting people or not. Since it involves audio stimuli in the form of immersion, sounds, music, voice acting, or what have you, or cues in the audio environment, you're actually reacting to that and learning to respond to that just as well as you're responding to the, the visual side of things. So as you might see someone that you want to go shoot, for example, if you hear that someone's behind you, you also need to learn how to process that. So you're switching between stimulus all the time and you actually get a benefit from that. So I can see how that would improve your ability to get familiar with that kind of stimuli and get used to processing them in a fast-paced way. This isn't the only way that we actually can use video games in education as well. They recommend, if you're learning a new language, um, putting on something really immersive like Skyrim, where you have to go through a lot of dialogue, but also you can sort of model your way through. Um, it can be really, really useful to learn a lot of language, like if you're going to go live in a country that was speaking that language for a little while. I, for one, I played Assassin's Creed number 2 in Italian. Because it was a game that was said and really involved walking around the streets of Florence, Rome, and Venice, and all the characters were Italian, it made complete sense to actually put the dialogue into Italian because all of it flowed and worked really well and was quite immersive in that way. You actually picked up the dialogue of what was being said and understood it in all the immersive cutscenes and interactions that you were part of. And it gave you a deeper feeling of immersion when you're playing the game. So the game was more enjoyable, as well as having the benefit of actually picking up words here and there of the language. So video games can be a force for good as well as evil in helping people learn and overcome learning difficulties. to Twitch, one of the major pulls or advantages of a system like this is that even though you've got lots and lots of inputs um, going in, sort of eventually like a collective will push the will of the group in a certain way. Um, similarly, when we work together a lot of the time doing group work, um, a similar sort of thing happens where a group working together can solve a problem better than any individual. So some researchers... Um, Okay. So some researchers in the University of Oregon have actually sort of formalized this into an experiment. And so they've found that um, students working together to solve like logic problems on a computer, um, if they were going by themselves, they, they did all right. But if they actually had access to the responses and techniques of the other people also taking the test, um, eventually together they sussed out um, a way to get the, the right answers. And so they had a better model together to actually get higher scores. But the drawback to this is when they were given similar but slightly more advanced problems, they couldn't actually work those out anywhere near as well as if they'd worked out the problems by themselves. This raises a really interesting question because what you're getting at here is if you have access to everyone else's answers, you can see that, oh, yeah, that's the answer that I'm supposed to get. But then when you start applying that to a different circumstance, you don't have the same skills built up in your own analytical ability. Yeah, you didn't figure it all out in your head beforehand. You didn't sort of... Take, make those mistakes and make those logical connections. So I think the learning is less deep. Um, and this sort of has some applications just to our learning styles and generally as they change, um, sort of as we're able to pick up more and more information quickly on the internet and stuff like that, um, we can get answers very quickly, but I often find if I'm having to apply that knowledge three weeks later, um, I have more trouble sort of being able to conceptualize it and I have to refresh myself again. Is this almost the difference between learning a formula and learning how you got that formula. Yes. So if you learn a formula, you're learning how to apply a piece of information, which in this case is sort of how to um, fix or solve one of these problems and get some points. But the actual idea of breaking it down, um, finding out the physical principles behind a formula, finding out the logic behind it, um, that's similar to sort of um, breaking down a problem 
Um, it requires deeper learning and allows you to actually extend your knowledge and, and sort of apply it in different ways. Let's have some interesting outcomes, I guess, for society if you extend it a bit further. Because if we're relying on groupthink and group crowdsourcing our answers for questions, what we're almost suggesting is the ending of the extension of new ideas. Because you're looking for ideas and answers that are already there, so you cut yourself off to a new and innovative answer. Which is, a, which is an interesting idea in the realm of science. So what was one of the example questions that they used in this, uh, this research? If a bat and a ball costs $1.10 in total, and the bat costs $1 more than the ball, how much does the ball cost? That's not a very hard one at all. Do people really... Sorry, let me just run this post me again. Okay, a bat and a ball cost $1.10 in Wait, total. Wait, that actually makes sense. And the bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? So, 10 cents. 5 cents. Wait. Yeah, the ball's going to cost 5 cents because it's going to cost 5 cents plus the extra dollar. The bat has to cost 5 cents plus the extra dollar. Okay, so that's an example of one of the questions. <laughs> oh my God. We just solved that collaboratively and then got an answer. Yeah, we actually did do it on paper. <laughs> I, I did the algebra. Lachlan was trying to do it in his head. Lauren solved it with logic, and I just said, no, let me write a formula for this. And we all got to the answer in different ways, but we all had different methods. And that's a great way of actually doing this research and understanding of it. Now, Lauren's answer might have worked in that circumstance. Lachlan's answer may, may or may not have worked, but the real best way to solve that as an algebra problem is actually do it with the algebra. Now, now if you relied on the crowd's wisdom and got the right answer, then you may not necessarily have learned the algebra method of solving that question and therefore may not have a more generally applicable solution. That's right, but it also has an interesting sort of outcome in that together we still do get the, the best solution. Um, and that sort of has some different things in society where if we work together collaboratively to try and solve more problems, maybe we would actually get better results, though. And that really raises an interesting question. So Twitch is a great way of playing Pokemon in a multi-massively way and exploring the social and cultural dynamics of it. But we can also apply the same terms of collaboration and lessons to a greater societal study. And this research from the University of Oregon has really got into the depths of collaboration and social networks and the way they really help improve decision-making and the limitations of social networks in helping improve decision-making. The ultimate answer? Moderation. Use your social networks to help, but also try and understand the root causes and reasons behind what you're learning. And you can have the best of both worlds. So in this episode of Not Even Rocket Surgery, we answer the ultimate question posed by Twitch Let's Play Pokemon and XKCD's recent comic on this phenomenon. And that is, if you're going to control any element of your life or the real world or anything, really, with a massively collaborative experience, what would you most want to see controlled by a horde of internet masses? Well, I've been thinking really deeply about this, and I think that it actually has been happening to me for a while on the dance floor. Please, explain the circumstances. Well, okay, so when I dance, I do a lot of different movements and in a lot of different styles, and it's like there are about 14 different people, all classically trained, trying to tell me what's going on at the same time. I see, and they all just basically, whoever gets the luck of the draw tells you to do all the action, then you just sort of go through them in a muddle. Exactly. You don't actually finish anything, but you have a lot of beautiful ideas and suggestions. Now that's, that's, so you're suggesting dance. Yeah. Not just should be, but actually is controlled via... Okay, that's an interesting theory. Lauren, what would you like to really experience having been controlled by a massive crowd? Uh, test answers. I want all the answers on all my future exams controlled by 50,000 people on the internet. <laughs>
well, we just explored this in the, in the previous story about the collaboration and group thing and the way that it work. So you want consensus to be the correct answer. Well, it's really funny because um, in Twitch, I think at the moment they have two modes, which is like, I think it's called democracy mode and what's the other one? Anarchy mode. Anarchy yeah. mode. So I'm not sure which mode I prefer, either democracy where everyone um, collectively chooses the correct answer or anarchy mode where it's just whoever's luck at the draw next person picks if it's A, B, C or D. I think you'd actually be more successful if you weren't very confident in the test, for example, mm-hmm. on anarchy. Because it's not like you're going to get the right or wrong answer. It's just going to be an answer. So it's really just luck. Whereas in democracy mode, you still have to not only get the right answer, but the right answer that everyone else has selected. (laughs) So I think in that case, anarchy would be better for test taking. At least you'd have a better strategy for approaching it. What I would like to see massively collaboratively controlled would be sport. So sports games like um, FIFA... Uh, Madden, Sonic and Mario at the Olympics. They're all fun, collaborative experiences where you have fun controlling a sports team. But I want to take it the next step further. I want actual real sporting teams to be controlled by the fans, either during the season or during the match. You don't like the team that the starting 11 have chosen for the Australian cricket team? Then everyone just selectively chooses and votes for who they should think should be in the starting 11. I think it'd be incredibly democratic, and Australia loves two things. One of them is democracy, the other one is sport. So if we combine these two things together, I clearly think it would lead to ultimate success or spectacularly entertaining failure. Well, you could have Twitch plays the Jamaican bobsled team and have it sponsored by Dogcoin. We've already done this, guys. We can make it happen. I really believe. So that's that's the answer to what we think should be controlled by a massive group of masses. Of course, none of us actually voted for the podcast, but we would love to have you all massively involved in collaborating and helping us with the podcast. If you have a question that you want answered, let us know in our comments on our Facebook page, on our SoundCloud profile, on iTunes, or on our website or send us an email, you can find our website at ysa.org.au forward slash Melbourne, and you can head out there and let us know what question you want us to answer in a fun and scientific way. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. And this week, we really tackled the science behind games and the ways they can help and hinder our society, from helping us improve our test scores or solving our dyslexia, to ruining gaming environments and wasting money. We also answered Dogecoin and ways to improve things by collective decision. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.